0: It's Thursday, December 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Happy Boxing Day. Hope you had a nice Christmas. Something a little different on today's show. I want to introduce you to someone. His name is Zia Zaman. He is an entrepreneur, he's a fellow at the Aspen Institute. And I got connected to him by my colleague, Brian Richards. Brian had met him on a business trip to Singapore. And he's a smart, interesting guy who is curious about the world. I read a little bit about him. And Zia is one of those people whose current success is not surprising to me, and any future success that he has is not going to be surprising either. In the same way that we look at businesses and think to ourselves, I want to keep my eyes on that and see where it goes, having sat down with Zia, that's how I feel about him. I'm interested to see where this guy's career goes, because I know it's going to be somewhere very interesting and potentially Game-changing in the world of business. Um, it turns out that he and I were in Boston at the same time during our college years. Uh, he was at MIT. Anyway, uh, I really enjoyed sitting down with him, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Zia Zaman. Yeah.
1: How did you like Boston? Uh, loved it. I mean, you know what it was like coming from Maine. Yeah. Everyone thought it was a strange, <laughs> cold city from people all over, and you're like, "All right, this is nothing." Yeah. Exactly, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And if you're from Montreal,
0: it's like, no, we're fine. Yeah. We're fine here.
1: First day it snowed, I had some friends from all over the world, right? Africa, Asia. I said, just to prove that you will not die, I am going to go out in my shorts uh, and show you that it's okay. I put on like a big, thick jacket and some running shorts. I didn't die. Five minutes later, I went back in and changed, but they just thought, okay, this isn't so bad.
0: I wonder if that's even the case anymore. Like, I wonder if. Mm people in this age of information, mm. if students going to a different place with a different climate, if they are at all surprised by it. Because I understand it a little bit mm. back in the 1980s. Mm. You know, I had a couple of friends first year at BC who mm. were from uh, California, right. and they appeared to be astonished that yeah. it was cold in Boston.
1: I think that it still happens. <laughs> really, Let me tell you why. It's just the information about the cold is all academic. The information that your nerves tell you about the cold is viscerally real when you first get there. And I don't think there is a feeling of cold, now that I live in 86-degree heat every single day, that, um, that you can replicate. You just can't. So, when I bring my daughter to j- skiing in Japan, she feels it, the, the cold, and says, it's something that I like, but I've never felt it before. Never. Right. So, I do think it's, it's a reality check for everyone. They're bracing for it, and then it happens.
0: It's a little bit analogous to I've had conversations with people over the past year or two about technology. Mm. And I find that, particularly when it comes to consumer technology, people who are involved in creating the technology are very excited, and rightfully so, if they're Mm. the ones building it, they're very excited about the specs Mm. and all of the technical aspects. Mm. And they are tempted to tell you all, you know using all this jargon. And I have to, as gently as possible, tell them, you realize the technology you're talking about doesn't hit people on the level you're talking about. It hits them, mm. in some ways, on an emotional level, or or just on, on a gut level. And you know, like Wi-Fi. Mm. You know, I was talking to a guy about this. You know, uh, this new system and how exciting and he was using all of these phrases, all of these technical phrases that mm. I frankly did not understand at all. Mm. And I said, you know, most people think about Wi-Fi in very binary ways. Mm. Either if it works, they love it and they're happy. Yeah. If it's slow or yeah. it doesn't work, they get frustrated. Yeah. And I think you're right that the, the cold is one of those things where it's like, yeah, you can read all you want about the cold, mm. but until you've been in like that bone chilling, you walk outside mm. and it hits you instantly, then
1: yeah. It, you and I were born into it, yeah. right? Um, and around tech, I think more engineers I've met recently. Um, use design thinking, and they think about the customer in terms of what they're doing. But back to Wi-Fi, that's a great one. A T-shirt I once saw in Thailand said, and I quote, life is what happens between Wi-Fi signals. <laughs> I <like> that. <laughs> and, and, and when you're traveling, backpacking around Southeast Asia and there's spotty Wi-Fi, fundamentally, you're just spending a lot of time on your phone and not enjoying Whatever, wherever you are. And so, life is what happens when you're not looking at your phone. So, before we get to what you're doing now,
0: take me back to MIT. You're at MIT, you're Mm -hmm. studying engineering.
1: So, I was studying this. I was studying math um, in many ways. I was in the electrical engineering and computer science department. But the professor that I was spending a lot of time with, um, a Bostonian guy named Dick Larson, he introduced me to probability theory and the idea that there are operations research problems or probability problems in an urban setting. and He called that course Urban OR. And what we were really good at is basically applying mathematics. And from the sophomore year onwards, I started to tinker with, well, what does this problem look like in in terms of math? And obviously, during the breaks, we talk a little bit about baseball, because it was all the rage it's a very easy to analyze sport with the confrontations and with the the aspect of how you can capture data. So, I remember one January, when we were going to seminars, somebody actually claimed that a triple was more valuable to a team than a home run. And everyone laughed, and we looked at his math, and he claimed that a triple keeps the rally going, and therefore, you basically um, have more runs as a result of a triple than a home run. So, Little things like that were the beginning of, of course, Moneyball and all the other things that have come since then, uh, sabermetrics, etc. I spent time in thinking about the airline industry. I love to travel. And the airline industry is just a classic um, optimization problem. You've got these expensive planes, you've got passengers, you have to try to maximize how much you're going to charge for them. And I even spent a summer figuring out how to do that in, um, in uh, Montreal. For one of the airlines. So, all kinds of cool problems uh, were what I was thinking about outside of the coursework.
0: What did you think you were going to do? Did you have an idea of
1: a dream job at that point? I really didn't. In fact, I I don't have regrets, but I just didn't have the exposure to all the different ways in which probability affected life. Uh, I think if sports management and thinking about um, the movies were things that I've always come back to. Um, is there a way to analyze what film or script will end up being successful? Same goes with, with uh, scouting players. But I don't think I thought that that would be a, uh, a career. But I knew it had to do with something around this.
0: So, the, the guy who had the theory about the triple, it, it was part of his theory, uh, obviously, it's a mathematical theory, but mm-hmm. was part of his theory uh, did it have anything to do with um, emotion or just the uh, the pressure that would be put on the uh, on the pitcher because well I still have a runner on base that sort of thing and uh, you know and I'm thinking about the the paper that you worked on recently about hockey and, and mm-hmm. sort of like when do you pull the goalie because it seems like you can analyze data but I'm assuming it's harder to factor in emotional state of mind of the people who are engaged in the game itself.
1: Back in those days, no one thought about that. There was no such thing as behavioral economics, I think. I think we really looked at the data, because that's all we had to analyze. And what had to be true, if you really think about it, is that a triple was worth more than one run, because otherwise, uh, the home run always works out to be more valuable. I think the data probably showed, or at least the set that he had, probably showed that the coach was less likely to pull the pitcher off the mound. And, indeed, having somebody in your line of sight, if you're a right-handed pitcher, can be very distracting. Uh, And it changes the dynamic of of the game. right? Um, And most times, if you get a triple, uh, you're going to come in uh, if it's less than two outs, of course. So, I think there's some Reason to believe that the data uh, yielded that, but I don't think that particular researcher really got into the uh, into the analysis of what's on the brain. More, what we did is we looked for human explanations after the data told us something, and that's that's an interesting way to look at even this problem around pulling the goalie. Yeah, let's let's talk like
0: so. Brian sends me this uh, link. He's like, I I read this paper and it was fantastic. You got to ask him about it. So so. Uh, how do you go, in what's the origin story of the the Pulling the Goalie sure. academic paper
1: that you wrote? Right. So, I've written two. And I'm going to talk a little bit about both of them, Chris. So I grew up, of course, in Montreal watching hockey. Um, the first real it's a memories, lot, I think, in I, no, It certainly is. The first few memories I have are, literally, of trading hockey cards, watching Hockey Night in Canada on a black-and-white TV, and four Stanley Cups uh, in the 70s. I've pretty lucky, but in fact, in many ways, unlucky that I was a little young to appreciate them. And while watching hockey, I thought I had a reasonable understanding of how the flow of the game. And you know, you tend to, tend to think, if you're from Montreal, that it's sort of the capital of, of, uh, of hockey. So, when I went to MIT, I started thinking about baseball. And at some point, I started reading about this problem uh, uh, that was, when do you pull the goalie at the end of the game? And because I was rooted in Oh, you pull it one minute before, because that's what coaches do. Um, I was surprised that somebody in the 70s, a guy named Urquhart, had said, no, you got to pull it earlier, five minutes earlier. And I remember reading the paper when I had enough math in me and uh, said, you know, that can't be right. Because the way they estimated the arrival of a goal in a hockey game was like the arrival of a bus at a bus stop. That's famously what they call a Poisson distribution. The puck could go into the net at any time, independent of when it last went into the net. That's why you get buses bunched up together. And so, what he did, Erkut did, was he basically used really smart data to say, all right, you could get a goal at any time, let's figure out what happens when you have an empty net goal versus a... um, a goal with even strength. And just to set it up for people who don't understand hockey, this is the problem. You're losing by one goal at the end of an NHL game, and you're going to lose anyway uh, as the time is running out. So, the coach might say, I'm going to pull the goalie out in favor of an extra attacker. And what that does is, it puts a little bit more pressure on the opposing team's goal. It increases the probability of you scoring by about three times. But it also increases the probability of them scoring by about seven or eight times, but at some point, if you don't try, you're going to end up losing the game anyway. So the question is, and it doesn't matter if you lose by one goal or two, or two goals, right? Um, and the crowd gets a little bit more excitement too. So what I think that we were trying to do is to say, look, you know, we play it safe. Maybe 30 seconds before the end of the game, let's pull the goalie and see what happens. And this started uh, apparently in the 30s, um, but basically it's been going on for some time. Famously, uh, the Russians never did this. Tikhanov, who was the famous coach, said, "I'm never going to pull the goalie. That's ridiculous." So, for years, people and they, and they had like a 20-year winning streak. So he they, could, you they know, s- could back that up. They certainly did, yeah, <laughs> but not against the best Canadians. But that's a different story. Uh, so what we we looked at was, all right, is there a way to, to figure out what is the optimal time? Meaning, when is it equivalent for you to pull the goalie towards the end of the game uh, versus not pull the goalie? That's sort of the, the crossover point. And Urquhart figured this out using the Poisson model. And I looked at it and I said, you know what, this doesn't take into account the flow of a hockey game, because, indeed, the puck could go into the net at any time, but I like to think of the flow of a hockey game as something that goes back and forth with the puck. So, there are various states to the game. And so, when you turn on the TV and you're kind of late, the first thing you look for is, of course, the puck. Where is it? And if it's in the neutral zone, you don't think twice about it, but if it's in the offensive zone, you lean forward, and if it's in the defensive zone, you get a little nervous. And the reason is, you can't score if you're not in the offensive zone. And the old uh, expression in hockey is, you can't score if you don't shoot. So, what I said was, look, there are seven states to the game, and that's what we call a Markov chain. It's a birth and death chain. And I estimated the probabilities of going from the neutral zone to the offensive zone, to the point where you get a shot, to the point where you actually score, and then back and forth to the other side. And what that does is, it basically helps you estimate what would be the optimal time to pull the goalie if you're in the neutral zone, but also what happens when you're in the offensive zone and when you're in the defensive zone. So, I wrote up this paper after I had graduated. Um, it took a little while. It was 2001. And the magazine was called Chance. And I want to shout out to all the people at Chance for basically <laughs> following up. Um, and Chance is the one that's been publishing this paper for other authors for quite some time. So, I forgot about it. That was 2001, Chris. And then? So, one day... Uh, was there a rebuttal and you had to go back? No, yes and no, interestingly. Uh, I, I moved to Asia. I didn't watch as much NHL as I'd like. The Habs didn't do as well as well. But uh, I ended up getting a call from one of my friends who went to MIT with me, and he was really angry. I said, why are you so angry? And he said, I was just listening to the Malcolm Gladwell Revisionist History podcast, and he says that one of his rules for life is pull the goalie. And he didn't give you credit, Zia. I said, what do you mean? And he said, look, this guy I know, Cliff Asness, wrote a paper in 2016, and Malcolm did an entire episode on it. you got to listen to it, but I'm furious. So, I didn't think much of it. I said, Dan, whatever. Right? It's been many years. So, I finally get to my, um, my favorite podcast app and download um, Malcolm and I start listening to it. And it's a brilliant podcast because it takes the problem and goes a lot further than what us you know, math geeks would do. And it talks about two people Cliff Asness and Aaron Brown. And Cliff uh, runs a multi billion dollar hedge fund which is a quant fund. And he and Aaron are apparently disagreeable people, according to Malcolm. And that's kind of the core to this problem, the the pull-the-goalie problem. And the Asnes-Brown model, which I call the AB model, basically uses some new techniques and some new data, dynamic programming, to calculate the optimal time to pull the goalie. And what they find is basically the same thing that I found in 2001, (laughs) that it should be about six minutes before the end of the game. What's also interesting is that in the paper, they cite my paper twice in a very favorable way. They said, you should look at the Zaman paper to figure out the state, and it would be great to be able to see how our data corroborates, because we almost got the exact same result. And when I really thought about it, they were using the same assumption that is state nonspecific. They didn't really care where the puck was. Uh, in calculating their model. And it's a brilliant model, and it, it works really well. And, and the, the, the rules have changed a little bit. They optimize for points because there's an overtime loss now. But for all intents and purposes, um, they just refreshed the model and got a lot of airplay with Malcolm, which is, of course, something that's really interesting. And uh, So, I looked at it and I said, well, what am I going to do, Dan? And I looked at it some more, and I realized there's something, of course, I could do. I could. Update the AB model using the same Markov idea. And I love the fact that Markov is a wonderful hockey name, right? It is. I mean, he used to be a defenseman for the Penguins and obviously for the Russian national team. So Markov fits very well for hockey and for math. So I basically do what Asnes Brown suggests, which is it'd be nice to see what happens if you made the state dependent. But I realized one thing, and I admit it, which is my math was rusty. You're taking a little time off. So the interesting thing was maybe my math wasn't rusty, but the best way to do this was coding it in Python, and I needed a thought partner, so I went to the National University of Singapore, and this guy named Hong Ming loves doing sports stuff, and I went to MIT with one of his professors, and we got together, and we we coded, and he was the lead programmer, and I was thinking about the math, and effectively what we were able to do is to modify that Aston's Brown model to fit with um, the idea that the puck can flow from the offensive state to the defensive state.
0: Have you reached out to Gladwell with the new paper?
1: So Partly, uh, this is an attempt to say, let's talk about this. So, effectively, what we found, uh, which the first thing you do is to replicate the Aston's Brown model, which we did. and Then we said, let's start to uh, do two things. First is, of course, figure out how it changes if the puck is in the offensive zone and the defensive zone. And then the second thing I started to think about was the coach himself or herself. Their mentality changes because of the crowd and because of the fact that this isn't just something where you can press a button and the goalie gets pulled. Have you ever seen an ice hockey goalie try to skate? Forty meters to the bench. It's kind of painful. Yeah, because it's not, they, they it's, got a bunch of. It's a little awkward. Right. It's a little awkward. So effectively, what we figured out is, even if you pull the goalie, because you have an offensive zone faceoff, you can reverse that decision. And the way you reverse that decision is that you take that goalie and you put him back into the goal. Perhaps if you lose possession of the puck in the offensive zone, makes sense, right? Someone from Maine. Yeah. So, the problem is, you can't just do that when the puck's in play. You have to wait for the next face-off. So, what we did was, we figured out, well, just how frequently do face-offs occur. And luckily, it was very, very consistent. It's every 60 seconds. So, there's this idea of a penalty or a, a timing of which the coach has to live with his or her decision. So, the two bits of information that we found is that, first of all, little bits of, of insight are incredibly valuable. And the reason is, it de-risks a risky situation. Because what is pull the goalie? It's a situation where you're making a desperate move that increases the volatility of the whole situation. And for the investment people out there, I think you've heard it described as follows. If you could increase the volatility of a call option, as it nears the end of its term because you're so far out of the money, it's a good idea because the chances are higher that it will go in the money. That's exactly the pull the goalie problem. So, effectively, what we're learning is, if you have a little bit of information about how risky the situation is, it gives the coach a little bit of air cover to say, hey, the puck is in the offensive zone, it makes sense to the crowd that I can pull the goalie, because it increases the chances of me score, being, uh, scoring uh, against that goalie. And if we lose control of the puck, the puck goes over the boards, I'll put the goalie back in. The crowd can accept that. So The first adage that we came up with was that we can de-risk risky situations with uh, particular bits of information. And that makes sense intuitively. The second point is that the puck transfers between these zones very, very quickly. Right, it will stay in the offensive zone for about ten seconds, and therefore this little bit of insight is fleeting. Right, you really don't know after ten seconds what zone the puck will be in, and you got to live with your decision for sixty seconds. So that balances things out. So when the coach can justify that because he has that advantage, um, he has a permission to be bolder, but he has to basically live with his decision, and you know. Pull a goalie, to me is about courage, right? And I think the question that Malcolm puts forward, which is really insightful, Chris, is what happens if you have a violent robber in your home with you and your family? Like, what do you do? Because it's socially unacceptable for you to run to get help uh, because in case your, your, your kids get, um, get hurt. So, what I'm basically saying is if you can lock your kids in a panic room. For some period of time and keep them safe, it gives you the air cover to go out and get help. I'll give you a couple of other examples. Pretend like you're a studio exec at a pretty small um, label, um, and you need to improve your results or else you're going to get fired. right? You have one last shot. So, you take a risk to do an indie movie with a first-time screenwriter director, and you think, this is the only chance I have left to actually have a low-budget, Um, a high box office yield movie. And what you're basically doing is you're pulling the goal. You're saying, I'm going to throw a caution to the wind. If I could tell you that I can de-risk the situation by saying, Meryl Streep's going to play the lead, well, it makes it a lot more palatable to say, I'm going to take that risk. And then the studio execs will say, OK, if you got Meryl, then that's fine. Um, Same goes with an investment manager towards the end of, let's say, the year, uh, you're not having a great year, and you know that either you're not going to get a good bonus or you're going to get fired, you might want to increase the volatility of the basket of assets that you hold because, effectively, you're going to lose your job anyway. Um, and Therefore, you might as well take a disagreeable position because it's the right thing to do. It's the same idea as the coach. You're going to lose anyway. And um, the last thing would be, a CEO, if from a management perspective, either near the end of his tenure, or she, it feels like she needs something blockbuster to pull her out of the doldrums with the analyst, will do something incredibly risky, like uh, acquire a peer, uh, etc. And I think that that basically repeats itself over and over again. And I, I just like the way that the pull-the-goalie problem, uh, for all intents and purposes, says, sometimes you need courage. But maybe more importantly, if you can find little ways that your courage can be justified, that's a good thing. Um, it's better than basically just making a blind bet. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and it you know it
0: goes to um, a couple of uh, a couple of things. One is the old adage from the mutual fund industry. Mm-hmm. I, I, this I, this example doesn't really hold uh, much water. Certainly over the last five years or so, but for a good Couple of decades, it was absolutely true that the old adage that no mutual fund manager ever got fired for buying shares of IBM because it was this stable blue chip, you know, was a tech business, and you know, and and no one's gonna no one's gonna knock you for buying IBM even if that stock doesn't do well. Uh, The other thing you just reminded me of is uh, an article I read recently about the economics of the film industry and, in particular, the economics of horror Mm. and how. the, part of the reason there are so many horror movies made, um, one is the economics of horror movies are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're low budget. They don't require large scripts. They don't require stars. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's also a way for first-time directors to cut their teeth um, because they get the freedom to sort of do whatever they want, mm-hmm. um, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's it's it. A big part of it is just the economics are just so good, because horror translates into every language.
1: Mm-hmm. That's exactly the point back to the coach, which is, it is easy for them to say, I pulled the goalie with the minute left, the puck didn't bounce our way, and everyone's going to give him a pass. Right? He'll say, oh, we gave it 110%, we just didn't get the shot that we needed at the end of the game. And you're basically buying IBM yeah. over and over again. Um, What Astonis Brown found was that over the course of one season, right, it's not just that one game, but over the course of one season, it would accrue four more points in the standings, which is material. And therefore, if you look at any individual decision, it's easy in the press to basically say, all right, I'm judging someone by that individual decision, but over the long period of time, it matters whether you make the playoffs or you finish first. So, it's easier to actually. It's, it, it requires courage to do what's unpopular on the days that it doesn't make sense. I play bridge too, and this doesn't happen in bridge. If you basically take a finesse and you win fifty-five percent of the time, if when you don't win, the queen's on the wrong side, no one gives you a hard time. Because there's no media, there's no press. Um, but you you always take the thing that's going to over the long run yield a better result. But Coaches are different. I mean, it's it's a media business, right? Uh, Hockey, and I love the idea that if you think about the switching costs, and one of the most interesting parts I think of of the paper is the fact that that goalie can't go back into the net quickly. And for those who like to watch soccer or um, the original football, um, the way soccer works is, of course, goals come at a significantly lower rate. But you may have seen at the end of a cup game the goalie will then rush to the um, opposing uh, penalty box for a corner kick, because the goalies are typically pretty, pretty tall. And the logic is exactly the same. But the difference between the goalie in uh, hockey and the goalie in soccer is pretty clear. I mean, any, anything you could think about? Uh, it's a lot uh, further for the
0: goalie to get back to the goal in a soccer game than it is, you know, even though they're not weighed down with all the equipment.
1: But I think the fact is that, as, as true as that is, the soccer ball doesn't travel nearly as fast uh, and as accurately as a hockey puck, the, the, and the, the, the keeper can run back reasonably quickly and doesn't have to do anything in terms of equipment to be able to save the shot um, back in his own penalty box. So, the switching cost for a soccer goalie is really, really small. And so, if we change the Swiss switching cost for um, our hockey problem, what it effectively means is that um, you would pull the goalie even earlier and then put the goalie back when you could, because there's, there's really no penalty associated with it. So, if you find yourself in a risky situation where you have the ability to use an insight, even though it's fleeting, but the switching cost is relatively low, then you should be a tinkerer. But I think, in reality, there are switching costs. When you try to get back into the house, the robber might get you. Um, the management might ask why you keep doing the same horror movie. Uh, and Therefore, I think you have to balance both, which is, the insights are fleeting, but if your switching costs can be managed, then you want to tinker. If the switching costs are high, then it's going to look a whole lot more like a situation where it doesn't really matter.
0: Uh, I've got one eye on the clock, so let me, um, let me move off of the paper for a second. Um, what do you do when you're not writing papers about hockey probabilities? <laughs> What's your day job?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I love traveling. And uh, right now I'm in uh, the DC area because I'm a fellow at the uh, Aspen Institute and thinking about social change in a broader context. Um, we think about not just shareholder value for the companies that we're a part of, but also stakeholder value. And me and my peers are thinking about issues of sustainability, circular economy, and for me in particular, it's inclusion. And inclusion uh, in the industry that I'm in, in financial services, is about how do you serve the next two billion people. So, it kind of combines a few of the things that I like to do. Um, the tech side is, things like blockchain and other tech help lower the cost and, and reduce the friction for people to get access to tech, just like we were talking about before. The people side is, I spent a lot of time in Asia and in developing markets. You know, People don't want complicated products. They want to buy over the mobile phone, and they want the product to be simple and easy to understand. And uh, uh, from a uh, sustainability point of view, it always helps to have more people involved. So I, I like to combine the travel, the business, and uh, the technology in both my day job uh, as well as in some of my uh, outside pursuits. But I do, I do love to think about these kinds of problems.
0: Where do you see financial services going in the next three to five years? And you can take that in any direction because obviously. You take a phrase like financial services; it can apply to insurance, it can mm-hmm. apply to investing, buying a home, buying a car, mm-hmm. any aspect of it. Is there? Uh, where do you think we're going, and, and what's the part that most interests you?
1: I think we we're already in that trend where it's getting democratized. I think we see that in the United States, but that trend hasn't completely happened all around the world. Uh, the future is already here, it just hasn't been evenly distributed yet, William Gibson famously said. The second point I think I'd make is that I think financial services, in some ways, is going to get embedded into other journeys. So, while you're doing something else, there'll be a moment of risk or there'll be an opportunity to make a payment. and. That little bit, that micro service, that micro journey of financial services will become a little less frictionful because it's part of another, another greater journey. And I think we're already seeing that the, the smart financial services companies are embedding themselves into our lives, making it easy to get in and get out. As opposed to thinking we're going to build this big cathedral and say you got to come in and put in your money, we're making we're we're deconstructing the banking and insurance industries and saying when you need it. Um, will be there for you, and we're going to make it as simple as possible. So, I think that's a big trend. And, of course, inclusion. I think that there are literally billions of people who have not used financial services because it's too complex, or it is that cathedral mentality. And yet, um, every single person on the planet has used a mobile phone, uh, for example, uh, at some point. In fact, the United Nations said that it's a basic human right in 2020 to have access to a smartphone. Um, more than running water and more than, of course, financial services. So, I think financial services will get embedded, it becomes simpler, and um, it, uh, it will do good for, for more people.
0: It has been interesting to watch uh, over the last 25 years, just in the investing world, uh, You know, the disruption that starts with, you know, go back 25, 30 years, and Charles Schwab mm-hmm. saying, you know what, we actually think people shouldn't be paying hundreds of dollars for a single trade of a stock. We're going to make that $50. And, you know, of course, there were naysayers. And then you have even further disruption with the E-Trades and TD Ameritrades of the world coming along. Um, And it it does seem like, to your point about um, distribution and democratization, that disruption can be. Exciting or terrifying, depending on your point of view. If you're an entrenched, large, successful company, then disruption is not necessarily something that you're interested in. And I think you're right about um, sort of the opportunities in terms of all the different transactions uh, that go on. But uh, it will be interesting to watch how some of the bigger
1: players behave because for some of them, they like the current model. Mm-hmm. I-, I love companies that want to innovate over and over again. Uh, and the reason is, even though you might be an incumbent or a large uh, uh, stakeholder or beneficiary of the existing model, if you take the point of view of, I need to serve my customer uh, to let them do the famous job to be done, then, for example, in an insurance, when you really ask people, you know, what do you want insurance for, life insurance, they will say, uh, I want to live a longer, happier, thicker, fuller life. And in many ways, uh, the more innovative company is the one that thinks about that customer and reinvents products and services and experiences with the brand that they currently have to make life easier and allow people to reach their goals. And so, I think that it could come from small companies, but uh, great large companies could disrupt themselves. Without getting overly personal, how do you invest your money? I usually use passive index funds. Um, uh, my wife works for a bank, so we also work with them as a PB, and it works out well to be able to do a little bit of both. Um, I think that I've been burned by the promise of EM, of emerging markets, more times than not. Um, but it's I been a
0: rough few years for it, emerging
1: markets. It certainly has. And I, I think I, I recognize why, um, when there's clear uh, path to growth in non-emerging markets. but. Just being out there, you see just how much potential there is. Uh, but I, I, I like the idea of having both the, the active and the passive. Uh,
0: given the amount of travel that you do, um, what is something that everyone who goes to Singapore should do or see? And um, if you could share, because I don't do a ton of travel, mm. um, one or two travel tips. Just sort of like, it could be anything, it could be sort of your strategy for dealing with jet lag. Anything I'm just I, I'm always looking for any kind of tip I can get.
1: So um, I love Singapore. I think it's been a fantastic home for me for nine years. and yet one of the things that people say about Singapore is uh, that one of the best parts is how close it is to other places. <laughs> and it's not an insult because it is in a really interesting part of the world. In fact, going back to math, if you were to draw, the smallest radius circle on the planet that covers half the population, um, that circle would have as, at its center a place in Myanmar, which isn't very far from Singapore. And what that flight would be, that, di- that radius would be, about a three-and-a-half or four-hour flight. So, when you think about it, you half get the planet. half the population of the planet is within a four-hour flight of Singapore. Wow. So, you can see everything. So, the tip I would I would give is, um, think about a place that you've never thought of before and talk to your iconoclastic friends uh, who, who do interesting things. And there are some wonderful books and photography exhibits that basically, um, this is what got me interested in Bhutan, Chris, that took a photograph of people in their homes, with everything in their home taken out so that you could see what they owned. And I remember going to and looking at a variety of different countries, and this Swiss cottage in Bhutan with the Asian-faced people with um, the incredibly colorful clothes and uh, a different set of things in their house fascinated me. And so, in 2000, I went to this country, Bhutan, before it had even really opened up. And, uh, and then that um, piqued my curiosity in other places like Uzbekistan. Which is a really interesting place that gets two lines in our history books around Timor, um, and and then other places as well. I've been to Easter Island recently, uh, and uh, I guess one of the interesting parts about traveling uh, and basing yourself in Singapore is that you can do a number of different things. And how to pick that thing is not just what did you know your your regular friends tell you, but was your most iconoclastic friend tell you is a place that you should go.
0: I was hoping for a jet lag tip as well. Sorry. But, <laughs>
1: Melatonin. That does work. Melatonin. Does it work? It does work. It resets your clock.
0: This has been great. This is I, I would love to talk for another hour, but I know we gotta get you into DC. But this has been great.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I have to write a third paper.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um and that, the fellowship at the Aspen Institute is that like is there a set time for that? Is there like like what is when did that start and when do you
1: end? It it convenes uh, three times over the course of a year. Okay. So we, we got together in Aspen. We're getting together in Y, Maryland, and next is going to be somewhere in Long Island, okay. uh, in uh, in May. But look, it's uh, it's minus three Celsius tonight. So I don't think they expect November to be this cold. But again, I'm from Montreal. You're from Maine. Right. Yeah. 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 No, yeah.
0: you you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, well, this has been great. I, I really appreciate your time.
1: Hey, thanks so much, Chris.